Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, it is the 8th of the 10th. Apologies for not being with you on Wednesday. For once, I must say, it was entirely my fault. I attempted to do something a bit too smart, what the eco-terrorists might call a techno-fix, Michael, and uh, bollocksed the recording. Well, as uh, Greta has made clear, no techno-fixes. Yes, for those who have missed the joyous news, I have moved house and none of my utilities have gone with me. To give you an idea of the sort of uh, poverty I find myself in, Michael, I'm in an office chair in a small room with no internet trying to record this off a phone. Uh, I don't even have a desk, but we did get heat yesterday, so it's a little bit less like a Victorian tenement. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the famine was nothing like it. There's uh, nothing quite like looking around and thinking, this is what those people in slums must have felt like while you revolve (laughs) on a 600 euro ergonomic chair. There's a song in that somewhere. Not a good one, but anyway. We've got 12.5%, once a red line, now, well, not really a line at all. We have Fine Gael's new bill for gender balance on boards. And for some weird reason, we've been getting a lot of requests to talk about a footballer, which is a first for me because by my own admission, I know not a single thing about football and would struggle to tell you the name of the current manager of the Irish football team. But you know what? I don't know if you'd be in a massive minority on that particular one, Gary. So, I mean, we may as well start with the football because people seem to want us to talk about this. This relates to, of course, Caelan Robinson, who's on the Irish team. He said there during the week that he hadn't gotten vaccinated for COVID and that that was his choice. As the Irish Times described it, Michael, he hijacked the slogan of the repeal movement when he said in the press conference, and without any apparent show of shame, Michael, that it was his body and therefore his choice. It wasn't just that he had hijacked it, according to the Times they, also, they said that he had inadvertently uh, hijacked it because I don't think they wanted to give him the credit for being sufficiently ajourné with the, the politics of the country and reading newspapers and things like that, that he would have actually deliberately have done this. So I think you could have, you could read all sorts of bad faith and nastiness into that particular comment, but we won't because that's not the kind of people we are. But they definitely, there was a touch of the inadvertently had, as I said, a touch of the condescensions and the patronisings about it. I quite enjoyed looking at it from a distance because some of the coverage was heading very much in a sort of footballers are idiots kind of direction. But I was just waiting for someone to say it was racist. Unfortunately, all the people who would normally say it was racist were piling onto him. It's a funny one. I'm aware of, I had been aware of this story because obviously you can't turn on Twitter for five minutes, but you become aware of it or you, you look at a newspaper, you listen to the radio. I hadn't been very interested in it because it was just another somebody talking about vaccination. And I saw our colleague and friend John McGurk was having small discussions with people on Twitter about it. But have I got this wrong? He has had, he has had COVID twice, hasn't he? He has contracted COVID on two, two occasions. Yeah, so he's had COVID twice, which is to say that he has a degree of protection against COVID. Yeah, I mean, he has had not just the vaccine, he's had the booster shot. Yeah, and that that didn't really seem to matter to people. Some of the terminology used towards him seemed to very much indicate that people thought he was a danger to those around him. And 
I, I, I blame mainstream media, Michael. For all the mainstream media complain about people spreading disinformation, which undersells the danger of COVID and points the vaccine as dangerous, I think a lot of the mainstream media coverage of COVID has been not deliberately designed to cause fear, but has played up the lethality of COVID and the danger of COVID and played down the efficiency of vaccines in a way that I, I think is actually also quite problematic. I, I, I'm happy enough to blame the mainstream media because that's what we do. But I'd also, I see that if we it starts, a lot of this starts with the, the government and the policy of communication that was pursued from the beginning by the government. At the beginning, it was pretty relaxed. And then it moved from relaxed into very quickly, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. And there was no balance. I remember us talking at this stage, April of last year, and I've adverted this before, there was a, a very prominent virologist in Israel who was looking not just at the response in his own country, which at the time was doing very well. Uh, at the it had got into the old vaccination much, much quicker. But generally, and saying, you know, we have to start to explaining to people that it's not like this virus is skulking around your front door or banging on the door, desperately trying to get in at you, but that it's there, it, it's a risk. But if you behave in a sensible, practical, safe way, if you protect yourself again, if you if you maintain the social distancing, if you mind your 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 hand and your face hygiene, if you do the things that you're told to do, then you can provide yourself with a very large degree of protection. Now, you, of course, you can be unlucky, and of course, you can find yourself in a situation where you can't control it, and you people would end up getting caught. But there was a grave imbalance all the way through regarding this. To extent, I said to you before, Gary, that. I had friends, and this is, I think everybody saw this, not just I mean, the people who were very anxious, but everybody became obsessed. Morning, evening, news, the number of cases, the number of people in ICUs, and it was every day, three or four times a day, people on their phones checking what were the case, what were the case numbers like? What were the ICU numbers like? Where were the hotspots for infections? Were there infections in my local area? Were there people in my local hospital? And people were becoming obsessed. To the extent that people who were maybe were more fragile, people who maybe were more naturally anxious, would see a story like say, and this is what occurred to me. We're talking about this man, and I think goes to a to a degree towards explaining the reaction towards this young man. I saw friends, and they would hear a report, which would have been reported as being absolutely horrific and terrible about young people in Salt Hill in Galway gathering on the beach and drinking cans or people somewhere in Temple Bar in Dublin and getting together. And they would experience this as a direct threat to them, like an attack on their safety. And I said, listen, if you behave yourself, you do what you're doing, what somebody in Galway is doing isn't going to have an effect on you. Okay, Gary, listen, if we extrapolate out and out and out and out and out, yeah, you can, it's seven degrees of Kevin Bacon with COVID, you can make a connection. But people experienced all of these stories that were being reported as if they were an actual real present threat to them. And it's like this young man is, people are experiencing him as a threat to them or most of the time to their granny 
when the fact is, if he's had COVID twice, I mean, even if he hadn't, but the fact he's had COVID twice, the likelihood of him becoming infected again. And did you notice, I'm just finished on this, Gary. Did you notice there were, I don't know if you saw, if this was printed, but I heard it on radio, people referring to him as a carrier. Yes, that was that was Joe Duffy, one of the uh, one of the callers in. I think the, the point you make about, you know, if everyone did it, and you want to take that Kantian sort of, you know, we've got to, we've got to do it that way. That was a lot more, should we say, motivating before 95% of the country was administered the first dose of the vaccine. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say, well, everyone will just do that when we've pretty much hit saturation point on people not doing that. And yet, here we are. And there's a very weird tone to a lot of the debate, nearly like it's become sort of a religious item of faith. I think the first point to make, actually, about him is he didn't say why. He may have a perfectly legitimate health reason. Not that it's our job to measure whether or not his reasons are legitimate or not. He may be absolutely entranced with conspiracy theories and has chosen something which could have harmed him, but doesn't look to have harmed him. Or he may have simply made an entirely rational decision not to be vaccinated. When you look at COVID and you look at the characteristics of people who suffer the most from COVID, the two characteristics that massively increase your chance of suffering a very negative uh, consequence from having COVID are age and weight, which is a shorthand in this instance for physical fitness. Footballers don't tend to be old and they don't tend to be overweight. So you're looking at someone who has, even broken down by age, a substantially reduced risk of negative outcome from COVID than the general population. Well, you know what? I would still say... Okay, if this was this time last year and he was a fit young footballer, then I would say that the context would still be different than it is now. If he was a fit young footballer who'd never had COVID, I would still say, well, you know what, I, I, I don't think we would have reached the point that we could make vaccination mandatory because it has always been the case that except in very, very extreme circumstances, people have the right to refuse uh, medical interventions of any kind. But I think there was a debate you could have had, and I think regarding social responsibilities, and okay, the threat to him, he himself might not be very great, but in the context that we were aware that very often the people who got it that were young and fit like him might get it and not show any signs of symptoms and therefore a la typhoid Mary mix around and represent some kind of a threat to people who are less protected than him. You could argue, and it was an argument you could make. The fact is, Gary, we're not there now. We are, as you said, in a context where 95% of the population, or damn near 100, I mean, we are number one in the world, in Ireland, for a a level of protection of the vulnerable population. We're damn near 100% of the vulnerable population being vaccinated. And I would say those who aren't vaccinated are people who can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. He himself is not in a situation where he's not, he, okay, he hasn't been vaccinated, but he's had COVID twice. And we it's not a guessing game insofar as there are, we do have pretty hard science, which would suggest that someone who has had COVID twice has a very high level of natural immunity. And people were giving out about the fact that people are using this phrase natural immunity. And for God's sake, do they not realise that to have natural immunity, you have to have caught it. I think a lot of the people discussing is hadn't copped on to the fact that the chap has actually 
been infected, and not just been infected once, but twice. So that the likelihood of being infected a third time would make him, frankly, probably the subject of a medical paper to be published and studied internationally. So I don't know if, as usual, the more interesting thing is not so much the, the fact of the man himself and the decision he's made, but the reaction to it, that he is this, he's a contaminant amongst us. He is dangerous. He is something inside the compound. It's very Jonathan Haidt. Mm. Just on a, on a note on the, the vaccination figures, that figure of 95%, that is for uh, adults, those aged 18 or over. But even when you look at those aged 12 and older, even in that instance, over 90% of the total population has received at least one vaccination. And I think we're at about 92% fully vaccinated uh, on the, the adults. So it's a massively different circumstance than last year. But people seem to very much care, disproportionately. And Listen, you know what? The fact is, Gary, we are coming out of, we hope, we assume, a, a pandemic. This is something we have never experienced before. It would probably be weird if we didn't have some kind of psychic baggage coming out of this. If there wasn't some kind of reaction, some kind of group uh, sense, and so and also some kind of odd psychic, I don't know how would you say psychic fear, psychic respect, psychic whatever towards the virus and all that comes with the virus and the possibility and the the notion of infection, and this is a manifestation of that. In normal times, you might say this is a very odd and weird thing. But it's, we have to remember, it's not really normal times. When you look at it, we're coming out of lockdown. Most restrictions gone from the 22nd of this month. Yeah. Cases massively down. Deaths massively down. Obviously, there's more that can be done there. But we're very clearly coming to the end of this bare and absolutely horrific winter resurgence or some new variant or something like that. And you're talking about a person who is... In an age and fitness demographic, which means he is massively less likely to suffer negative consequence from having COVID, mm -hmm. his peers are massively less likely to suffer a negative consequence. He himself has had COVID, which means he has some level of natural immunity to it. There's a debate about whether the vaccine or natural immunity is stronger, which lasts longer, those sort of things. But it's not a small thing. And we decide to focus on this. When even any of the arguments I've heard brought forward, like the, the role model one, doesn't run because the vaccination program is largely over. Yeah, him not taking the vaccine is not going to put at risk some other group of people's decision to whether or not to take the vaccine. That 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 race has been run. That argument has been won. The vaccine is has been taken, and those that are left out in the population who are not taking the vaccine are not going to be influenced one way or the other. By a young footballer. No, and I've seen people arguing that, you know, it's an honour to be on the team and he's made a terrible decision from uh, you know, when looking at this from a position of social responsibility and therefore he should be removed from it. And I just don't think that's the case, largely. I don't see the point in removing a player for something like this. It's a very dangerous kind of precedent to start that kind of thinking. It does, I, I, as I said, there's a touch of the Jonathan Haidt uh, about this, about, you know, those, as Jonathan Haidt always says, he's, you know, if you go to perfectly rational people who in 
every other circumstance will behave in a reasonable, rational way and look at the evidence and the empirical data, blah, blah, blah. But in the particular case, you give them a choice between holding what they feel, what they consider to be sacred, and sacred is using the wider sense here. It's not, you could be talking to religious people or non-religious people, but we all have things which we hold sacred. And you say, okay, you can have what is sacred or you can have what the evidence shows. He says 99% of the time, the evidence goes out the window and we all cling to what we hold sacred. And there is that sort of religious thing about this thing where he, he where Height's theory is that we have, that, that at least in part morality evolves from disgust and that, and part of that is a fear of infection and that strong set, that sense of of the of pathogen the fear of the pathogen and it this evolves into a into a into a religious or quasi-religious manifestation i think there's there's a strong element of that here it's not a rational fear really at this stage and the and the punishments are, are certainly disproportionate i think you can make an argument from social responsibility I'm not sure it's a right argument, but I think you can make it in good faith. It's just not one I agree with. What I do find somewhat amusing is that if you look at many countries across Europe and you look at vaccination certificates, which many countries have now, not just in Europe, quite a lot of them will allow you to get them if you have had COVID and you therefore have a naturally acquired immunity. There certainly are places, and quite a few, where if you didn't, as an alternative to the, the COVID pass, the vaccination passport, it was acceptable to have a, a, a certification that you had had COVID. That was the alternative. And if that's the case, well, what's the, what's the problem? I think the problem is that he didn't do something that people feel he should have. I wonder if, I just, I, if when all of this had blown up, he had simply said, oh, I absolutely would have taken the vaccine, but I have been advised by my doctors that since I have taken, I've had COVID twice, that it is not necessary medically or socially for me to take to have the vaccine. If he'd phrased it like that, would this have ever been a story? Are you asking whether or not ultimately this is not a story about COVID at all, but rather about, shall we say, certain middle class sensibilities? Well, yeah, I suppose maybe that is what I am saying. That if he had played the game the way it was supposed to, people had expected it to be played, then it wouldn't have been an issue. But instead, he just seems to have said, and again, I may be mis misrepresenting the young man here. It seems to me that he was just asked, he said, no, I'm not getting it. And didn't really fill in any of the blanks after that, which is his right. Just didn't explain, didn't attempt to even apologise, Michael. Yeah. Just said it and continued with his life, as we will, as we segue into our next story. Yes, go on. I know, see, we're, we're working on those transitions. Well, yeah, not well, but anyway, we're working. Emer Higgins, the Fine Gael TD, has been throwing around the place the last while a bill on the gender makeup of boards. Emer has been saying that, you know, we've got to reflect Ireland, Michael, and it's tragic that so many boards don't have women on them. And she's been talking about this for a while. I thought this bill had come in months, if not a year ago, and it was just stuck in uh, in a debate somewhere. But no, she actually got to the first stage of the process yesterday, and she introduced it. So on the Act, once the Act comes in, anything defined as a corporate body has 36 months to establish a, uh, a gender balance of 40% of uh, women or men on their board. 
Now, within the first 12 months, companies uh, must have 33% of women or men on their board. So it's a very short timeline for what could be a quite dramatic shift in a board, depending on the sector you're in. Pretty much, actually, immediately after the bill comes into law, 33% of your board, the entity which controls your company, must be women or men. So the National Women's Council, who I believe were involved in drafting this, may have to bring in some more men. Right. We shall see. So if you are, let's say, an engineering company, or you make cement, industries that don't traditionally have a large amount of women in them, although there are some and some have risen quite high, good luck with that. Well, good luck with that if you're going to look for women with expertise in cement or petrochemical engineering, but you don't necessarily have to have sort of, you know, skill-specific people on your board. I mean, there is such a thing as a non-voting director. Yeah, they're there to sort of ensure good corporate governance and ethical behaviour. And... Or you could do what's happened in other countries that have brought in these sort of laws. And what you can do is companies can basically just share women between them, creating a massive conflict of interest, actually. Uh Sort of like trying to do business in China, where you just need Chinese people involved. Don't actually need to do anything. They just need to be there. The government is going to get angry at you. What I thought was particularly interesting, other than the fact that the timeline is totally unworkable, is that she said that this was going to be done on a comply or explain basis, Michael. Well, actually, she said comply and explain, which is not the right thing, but sure, we'll let it go. And that's actually an interesting thing, because this is a regulatory approach. That basically says, we're going to pass this. And a company will either have a choice of complying with it or making publicly knowable why they haven't uh, abided by this regulation. And the theory is that, well, you bring a bit of a market into it and it's not a government trying to force a company. A company is perfectly able to ignore it. They just need to make it known that they have ignored it and why. Which is not the worst principle I've ever heard. Okay. Problem is that when you actually read the bill, which I did do, because, you know, why not? It's not really a uh, comply or explain bill. It's actually, you don't get a choice about this. You can explain. But if anyone decides that your explanation isn't good enough, well, they can try and force you to do it. They can go to the High Court and they can get an order from the High Court telling you that you have to do this. Now, weirdly enough... There's no actual punishments written into this bill. So it's unclear what happens if the High Court were to make an order and you simply not comply with it. So, for example, if a member of the board uh, or the minister or, or one of the other competent people who are mentioned in the bill decide that you haven't made whatever they consider to be the required effort to, to comply with the regulations, they can apply to the High Court and the High Court can then direct you to comply with the regulations. But in the absence of a specified sanction, does that mean does that mean that the board then would end up in contempt of court? And how would that work? Like the whole of the board? Say I'm on the board and I'm the person that complained. Would I be included as the how does that work? I mean do you does the whole board end up in choky until the contempt is purged? Does the does does the court have a timeline? Does it say we give you? I mean, there has to be a certain reasonableness about this. Does they say, well, you know, you you have to appoint four women directors? 
uh, so we're going to give you a month or six months or uh, would it be would it be dependent on the sector i how i don't how does this work uh, i've read the entire bit it's not a long bill i'll put a link to it at the bottom of this it is uh, nor does it explain what a deficient explanation is so you you don't comply you give your explanation of why you don't comply and it says if it's deficient well they can go to the high court but not what that entails. So how do you ensure that you abide by that? Do you know, has anybody done any research on the shape of Irish boards? And I don't mean globally, like saying that only 21% of women are, are boards have women on them or whatever, but rather like an actual pyramid. Like, are there businesses, I wonder, I'm just wondering, are there businesses of a certain type where you actually have boards which are dominated by women because... The business that they're in or the, the area of in is, is is of particular interest to women the market is particularly dominated by women and therefore with more women and then that goes all the way down to those areas traditionally historically dominated by men uh will this affect well, presumably if there if there are such groups then then those group then the, there'll have to be more men on the other boards as you said like will the the women council, the women's council of Ireland, will that get a pass? Will they be able to explain that, as when the women's council of Ireland, they shouldn't be expected to have men on the board because that's not part of their competence or their purview or something? I don't, is there evidence that you are aware of that this actually is good for corporate governance or good for companies or good for profits? Or so, I I just want to give you a quote from Higgins' speech when she was introducing this bill, Michael. Companies with balanced boardrooms make better financial business decisions. They are shown to perform better financially, and that leads to trickle-down benefits for women at all level in all companies. This bill will create the opportunity for men and women to be fairly represented at the top table of business, and ultimately to a better balance in the boardroom being achieved. I wanted to make two points there. One, this bill will create the opportunity for men and women, presumes that that opportunity is being denied to them at the minute. So it presumes women making 22 to 25% of uh, board members in Ireland is because someone is stopping women from becoming board members. That has never been shown in modern Ireland. Occasionally people will refer to scenarios that happened 60 years ago. Oh, Gary, 20 years ago, I'm sure you could find them. But today... I mean, it has been the law for a, a long time now that you can't discriminate in, in employment on the basis of sex or gender. So, and the second point there, where she says that companies with balanced boardrooms make better business decisions. This is something you hear constantly from academics, from business people, from members of the government. And the problem is, when you actually look at it, when you look at the most rigorous studies, the most detailed studies, that's actually not what happens. So here's a quote from Catherine Klein. Now, Catherine Klein is a professor at uh, Wharton, the American college, very prestigious university. Famous for its business school. So she is a management professor there. She is the, or was, uh, the vice dean of the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. And she makes the point that when you actually look at this, companies do not perform better when they have women on the board but nor do they perform worse. They perform pretty much the same across the board. But that actually, when you think about it, makes perfect sense. 
businesses are there to sell you things, whether they be items or services. They put immense effort into understanding their company. So this idea that a board that is 90% men could not figure out how to sell something to women is total nonsense. You have very large companies made primarily of men at the board level who put millions upon millions of dollars into market research to sell things to women. So this idea that, you know, all this time, no one had ever thought to ask a woman what she thought, it's ridiculous on the face of it. Businesses don't like to leave money on the table. They're going to ask people how to sell things better. In fact, I would say that a lot of these large businesses know more about men and women than nearly any other entity in existence. Yeah, but they, they're not going to say that kind of stuff publicly because publicly that's not the kind of stuff you can get away with. They'll privately implement their business plan on the basis of that data. But publicly, they no, 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 that's, that's not the way we go at all. Just looking at Klein's quotes, she, talk, she says, many rigorous peer-reviewed studies of board gender diversity. She talks about why this is not surprising because it's so much of a... Uh, interest to politicians and sociologists. And what she says is, depending on which meta-analysis you read, board gender diversity either has a very weak relationship with board performance or no relationship at all. Can I speculatively, slightly dangerously, put forward a suggestion of why, perhaps to a degree, that might be the case? Is it possible, Gary, that the kinds of people that end up on boards of large multinational companies are going to be very similar kinds of people, irrespective of whether they're men or women? Well, that I think is actually an interesting little thing that's not brought up a lot of the time when people talk about diversity. We need to do this because diverse boards perform better and then they fill it with women or they'll fill it with whatever minority they want to do at that point. But they tend to be people of very similar social background, education and belief. And it's almost like that's actually not terribly diverse where it matters on a board. There's also the very simple fact that uh, diversity on boards is not always going to be a good thing. If you are, for instance, a farming conglomerate, you probably don't want to bring on a load of vegans. Probably not. Sorry, I don't know. Did you see the story, which I enjoyed? It's nothing to do with this one. Maybe it has. There's a a very famous, very, very upmarket vegan restaurant in Manhattan, which has been got a little bit of bad publicity the last few days. The chef over the period of the COVID had announced that they were going to go completely over to plant-based menus and there was no need to be using animal products anymore to produce uh, very high levels or Michelin star kind of cuisine. And the only animal products they would be using would be, uh, I think, honey and milk during their tea and coffee services. Well, Gary, I, I don't know if you saw this right, but it has now been on, come out that there is a private room which is given over to very high cost, high level uh corporate events where they're serving things like roast loin of beef and foie gras with black truffles but it's a secret room i think that's a wonderful metaphor for so much of what for what passes for the the woke super is that so super rich business class in wall street today 
vegans on the vegans in the front room and in the back room they're stuffing themselves with foie gras and small birds <laughs> i suppose it's diversity it amused me anyway i'm easily amused i remember there were two or three studies that were done in sweden back in the day which were strongly suggestive that they introduced the introduction of a greater gender balance on boards had actually had positive outcomes but then two things happened first that when other people went and looked at the studies that they found that the studies were deficient in a number of ways but also that a lot of the same women were being involved in the boards does that ring any bells with you yeah i mean the, the thing with women being involved in many boards is a common feature of anywhere this has been brought in because in certain sectors there simply aren't enough women but you need to mit, you know, hit this target so you're going to hit the target. Now, I will say that our loose gender recognition law does make this a lot easier. And I will say, Michael, at the point this applies to us, you're becoming a woman. A lovely woman. For a lovely man. <laughs> it is remarkably easy. I mean, that is the one thing about it. Because of our gender recognition laws, it would be very easy for the board to comply. And there are consequences, Gary, which may be unintended. I actually don't mind Emer Higgins. She's not the worst of them. I deeply dislike any attempt to do things like this, partially just on a, a property rights basis. Boards are elected by the owners of the company, by the shareholders. Yeah, this is this is the if we want to be serious about it for a minute, this is the real issue. This is the step where it seems to me we are going beyond. Companies, these companies are private, they are privately owned bodies. These are, these are, this is a private property. They are private institutions which have the right to write their own rules and their own regulations and their own bylaws. Now, we have decided in the past, like lots of other countries, that you cannot, in specific individual situations, discriminate against a candidate for a job or a position on the basis simply of their sex or gender. You can't say, okay, you're a qualified person, and if it weren't for a fact that you're a woman, we would give you the job. And I think that you can make a reasonable argument for that. But this is going beyond that. This is, this is saying it's not necessary to produce an instance where people were actually discriminated against. We're going to go in and we're going to tell a privately owned group a privately a private body a private a club it could be a, a club or an association or a company whatever it doesn't matter these are private institutions and the state is telling them how they are to organize themselves and how they are to govern themselves to me that's problematic it's one of those interesting things where there's all this talk about boards but i don't think most people actually know what boards do or what they are and ultimately all a board is is an entity which is put together by the owners of a company or a charity or anything like that with an aim to overseeing the business and ensuring it is being run correctly. Now, of course, below that you have the CEO handling the day-to-day decision-making, but a board is a body put there by owners to ensure and that everything is going well and to protect their property and to make sure it goes in certain directions. And this seems very clearly to be the state coming in and telling owners that, well, you don't get to decide who actually does this. Even if you think these people are better for the job, 
So you may take a hit here and lose some control over the use of your private property because we have decided that there are too few women and therefore you're going to have to do this. And no one, by the way, that I've heard has ever explained why it's actually a problem that women are only 22 to 25% of board members in Ireland. There's an assumption it's a problem and that it must be made equal, but I've never actually heard a good reason why it is a problem let alone a problem that the government should be involved in, I would I would be interested to see if there are constitutional issues with this. I would suspect in the Irish constitution you'll get it true on some of the common goods grounds. Yeah. The first thing is you'll have, to, you'll have to get it to the court. And you'll have to have standing. You have to have standing. And that very often seems to me that's the trickiest part of making a constitutional case here. I know what you mean about the the, the 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 common good and stuff like that. The only thing is, and we've talked about this before, the Irish Constitution, or more specifically, the case law that has occurred in Ireland since the 50s in the High Court and the Supreme Court on constitutional issues, is very strongly protective of private property. Private property and the family have... Be, have a, both in the actual text of the Constitution itself, but then also have accreted through case law very strong protections. And yes, it would be interesting to see what the opinion of the court was on this. I mean, in a normal circumstance, what to do this kind of thing, what the government would have to do, would have to produce very solid evidence, first of all, I would that doing this would have a a, a demonstrable beneficial effect on the common good and I think that would be difficult for the government to do and it would also I think probably have to demonstrate that the, the, the status quo was pernicious and having a negative effect and also and thirdly and this again I, I think is something which is not properly considered is what is the trend what is the trend now regarding the composition of boards and more particularly what what do they think what is the trend going to be going forward as we look I mean, Gary if you look at the universities today right how many departments in university have a majority of male students in Ireland I would struggle to tell you but internationally at least within the West and, and Europe uh, not many come to mind if you're looking at, say, 150 departments, I think you're you're probably talking, literally talking four or five at this stage. Departments that even until the great things like certainly law, uh, law and medicine, uh, certainly the all of the arts, every art subject, with the possible exception of philosophy, I'm not sure. Even in business, in areas that were historically until quite recently dominated, not even dominated by men, but majority men, you're, you're now getting into very specialised areas. You're, it tends to be areas which are very strong with maths, 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 physics, physics, uh, and the engineering subjects more than anything else. Computer engineering, petrochemical engineering, uh, geology, those kinds of areas, you, you're getting a majority of men. And even there, the numbers are, are not stable. So the notion that when you have that kind of a social reality that that you're not going to see simply as a, as a result of what the available talent pool is, you're not going to see a change in the boards. It seems to me to be difficult. 
But on the other hand, and going back to a conversation we've had before, you've talked about before, you are going to you're not necessarily going to have the kind of 50-50 outcomes because at a certain level, you're going to have people who are going to make choices about their lives and about the amount of time they spend in work, the value they attach to their work, the value they attach to earning money, the flexibility that they're willing to give up to their work, etc., etc. And we know that again and again, men are far more temperamentally inclined to give themselves over to, to their work, to their profession, to their job than women are. So anyway, uh... Higgins has come out with a load of stuff about the need for this, which appears to be totally unbacked by science, but the Women's Council of Ireland was involved in writing the bill, apparently. I'm not sure of that, but I've heard that. And that might explain why things are being said that just don't have much of a relationship to reality. So I will ask Higgins what studies she is referring to. Because there are studies that say what she says. They're just bad. But maybe she's found some good ones, Michael. And I'm willing to accept I'm wrong if she has. I just, you know, looking at the average standard of things the National Women's Council is involved in, I just don't see that happening in this instance. I also just have that suspicion that those women that are on those boards these days in these successful companies, are going, you're going to find a hell of a lot of them are going to be women with high quality degrees from places like Princeton and Harvard, MBAs from Wharton, who did 80 and 90 hour a week uh, work weeks in their companies, and uh, and either are either unmarried or childless, or else have a, possibly with children, but with an army of nannies and childcare behind them, uh, so that the effect of how diverse this diversity is, well, that seems to be one of the problems with diversity generally. Just just to actually before we move on to reinforce the point that Klein was making. She wasn't talking about one or two studies. She based what she was talking about, and I'll put a link to this in, in the podcast, on two meta-analysis, one of which was 146 studies. So it is. So on to 12.5%, Michael. Now to be 12.5%, but also 15% in certain instances, uh, but not in all, it's gone a bit complicated, which I'm not sure is exactly what the OECD wanted. They seem to want to simplify things. Whereas now it appears we're going to sign up to 15% corporate tax rate on companies that have a revenue of over 750 million and 12.5 on companies below it. Now, the two things that immediately come to mind there, the technical things, are I'll be very interested to see what safeguards they put in so that you cannot do the very obvious loophole and start setting up uh, subsidiary companies to ensure that your revenue does not go over 750 million. And the second thing I think will be very interesting, and I haven't really seen many people talk about this, but it is actually quite important, is or are there going to be any changes on how companies in Ireland are allowed to deal with certain tax issues like R&D because if there are some changes there included in the OECD proposal when it gets to the to the end that could be quite interesting they could have far more of an impact on us than people think but I didn't really want to I wanted to mention those technical things but my real interest here Michael is not that it's going to change but the fact the country just turned on a dime 
to change it. The narrative now seems to be that uh, 12.5%, which we were told was the red line, politicians have said we would leave the EU over it. We have had, you know, we will defend blood, sweat and tears. This thing was Normandy. Oh, it wasn't, I, I, I forget, it wasn't Lisbon. Wasn't Lisbon too passed only on the, on notionally passed on the basis that we were absolutely guaranteed our 12.5% and, and this was this was the sacred, the this was the holy grail. This, the, the, nothing could be touched. One of the questions that nobody, everybody seems to be sure of, but I find it hard to get people to tell me how important, really, 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 is the twelve and a half percent. There are different there are different views on it. And what is actually going to change? The OECD is introducing this fifteen percent across the board, but. Are we actually going to see a real change in the transparency and complexity of international tax law? Or is this just a performance that we've decided to put in, in the context, I don't know, in the context of the Wall Street protests and the collapse in 2008 and a general sense of disaffection with popular capitalism? Or, I don't I mean, for the, we have talked about the twelve and a half percent, and and on the other hand, then we have talked about how important it is and that and, and the, the the French oh it's always the French, isn't it? Have their eyes on it, but then you have pe- like the um, the state controller and auditor general back or oh, five or six years ago did a, a report, which they said actually it's all hypocrisy. That while we have a corporate rate. Of twelve and a half percent, our effective tax rate is eleven point nine percent, and the French effective tax rate is one point four percent. So that actually the French are being just complete hypocrites about this, while their statutory corporate tax rate is one thing, that their effective tax rate is the other thing. And this is when you start to read about this, Gary, and you're not a tax an international tax accountant, it does give a person a headache. I mean, I was reading the U.S. The US, the Congress did a study on this a few years ago, and they broke it down into three areas. You had the top, you had the statutory corporate tax rate, then you had the average effective corporate tax rate, and then you had the marginal effective corporate tax rate. And (laughs) I don't understand these. I mean, you have the United States, which has the highest in in the world, which is uh, corporate statutory corporate tax rate at 39%, right? Italy has a statutory corporate tax uh, rate of 31%. Now, unless this is a typo, if you go over all the way to the marginal effective corporate tax rate, where the highest is Argentina with 22%, Italy Italy has a marginal effective corporate tax rate of minus 23.5%. What any of these tax rates ultimately end up meaning, I think, for the likes of Joe Soap and me, is really trying to is trying to look into a bowl of stew and read something in the bottom of the pot. I mean, it's just impossible. But politi- politically, yes, politically, this looks like just a simple cave in. And a major change, a really major change in Irish, in Irish, in Irish international 
positioning. And there was that rather plaintive uh, press release where they said that before they would agree to it, they were going to seek assurances that the, that it would be 15% and that would be it. There would be no more demands. There would be no more revisiting of it. It would be 15% and that would be the end of it, which is kind of sad and pathetic, really, because once you've gone to 15%, because you've agreed on the basis that we have to, because everybody in the world says we have to, well, if the rest of the world says we have to go to 17 and a half and 20 and 22, then that's what's going to happen. Well, at least with the excuses that they were given, which was they didn't want to become a pariah or suffer reputational damage, which is to say, well, if all the other countries gather together at any point and say any figure, you'll risk that if you don't get on board. So you'll agree to absolutely anything. On the on the point you made about effective tax rates, yeah, it, it's nightmarish trying to actually work out effective tax rates across countries and it's very hard to do generally because depending on the sector depending on what you can write off depending on how easy you find it to do things like profit shifting you can get massively different answers and i've seen official government releases which have made claims about let's say the effective tax rate in france for multinationals which have just been way off either too high or too low massively so but on this i just I find it very interesting. As I said, it went from such a cherished thing, such a red line, and then it seems like everyone decided, well, I suppose we just have to change it, so that's the new thing we have to say, and we're all just going to say it. There's no real debate, there's no discussion, there's no issues in the doll about it. The French foreign minister, just sorry, the French finance minister comes out and just says, well, the Irish government is no longer stuck on the issue of 15%. And that appears to be, well, okay. We don't even get told by our own government. Now, they have now come out and said, yes, they're willing to go to the 15%. But I just find the, the lack of discussion of it very interesting, considering it was so cherished. And now it's not, and people seem to just have entirely forgotten that it existed, despite the fact it's still there. And for a long time, it seemed to be the only thing that Irish politicians believed in. The only thing that you could say for a certainty that Irish, any Irish politician believed in as an absolute principle was the corporation tax of 12.5% and that was it. And now it's gone. So what, what do we hold firm to now, Gary, in the seas that crash around us? What rock of certainty can we grip to? It's all very sad. The interesting thing now is I've, you've started to see people coming out and saying, actually, it won't be that bad. It will have limited efforts. A very basic analysis of it. Uh, the simple truth of it is that no one has any idea what a change like this or the OECD compact will actually do to Ireland. And I think that will depend a lot on some of the other technicalities they'll be dealing with. Because they're going to want to close off a lot of other avenues for companies to um, avoid tax. And they could be far more damaging than the actual headline rate. I mean, there are there are arguments that the 12.5% didn't matter as such because we were already no longer the lowest in Europe. You know, other things mattered more, whether it was R&D tax credits or whether it was that we were known to have a stable line on corporate taxation. And it wasn't so much that it was 12.5%. It was that you knew it was never going to change. So you could do long-term planning and it was, it was very easy to work with. We will see the truth of some of those. And we're also, I'm sure, going to see some very interesting accounting work. <laughs> yeah, 
it's going to be it's going to be a whole fun time for the international tax accounting accounting community. At the point they announced that the twelve point five five percent would still be there for certain companies, there was an immediate sort of oh let's see how this is written. Yeah, but it's gone and uh, now it's it's dead or will be shortly dead. It'll be interesting if Biden can't get this through the uh, through America. Oh, but that's the other thing, Gary. I mean, if you're talking to Americans about this, I mean, shall we say, sceptical is to undersell it regarding Biden's capacity to get this through Congress. The Republicans expect to take back at least one, if not both houses, come their next opportunity. If the Republicans come back in, is this getting true? Lots of the Republicans don't like it. I don't see that happening. Chances are, it won't even, chances are, even with, even with the Republicans, without the Senate. I mean, there's the senator, the Democrat senator in Arizona and the Democratic senator in West Virginia have already expressed their doubts about voting for this. And Americans, generally speaking, as a principle, do not sign up to international agreements which bind Congress. They don't believe that you can do that. I think the thing with this, with, with something like this, changing something like this, there are two ways you should do it. You either recognise that it's inevitable, in which case you try and be one of the first people to move on it so that you can direct it. Yeah. Or you say you're not going to do it. You don't want to be the people who say you're not going to do it. And then once a tiny bit of force is applied to you, say, oh, we're worried about how we might look, we'll crumble. In other words, you don't want to be us. You don't want to be us. I remember, it was probably a couple of years ago, Michael, we were talking about... Uh, debt renegotiations, I think, and things of that nature. And we were making the point that, and this was, I think, on a European level, we're saying that the French and Germans would try and force us to change our corporate uh, corporation tax rate. And we could think of no worse government to be put under that kind of pressure. No. Because this government cannot handle it because this government is largely dysfunctional. And now we had that exact scenario happen and the government says, well, we don't want to look bad, uh, so we're just going to do this. But it kind of just looks like the government has crumbled and the sort of consensus has been, well, we had to crumble. There was no other choice and that is the opinion of all respectable people and that is what newspapers will say and it's what radios will say and it's what politicians will say. And we're doing that wonderful thing we do where everyone just decides we're going to do this now. And that old way of doing things is dead. That never happened. It is literally what my friend Paul Kennedy would say. But no, sir, we didn't want to do it. But bigger boys came along and made us. That is literally the, that is the government position. We didn't want to do it, sir. But bigger boys came along and made us. I, I think you can make a good argument that there was a benefit in Ireland to move on this in line with the OECD. There's two issues with it. This was not the best way to do it. And I don't get a sense that the government is in control of this. It seems to just be something happened. Now we need to do this, as opposed to we had a plan and we actualized it, and that's why we're doing this. Jeez, Gary, this government never had a plan that was a good plan. But anyway, we shall be back, presumably talking about other plans and other fine and fruitful ideas on Sunday. But until then, I suppose, 
stay in, stay dry, and keep yourselves warm while the lights stay on. All the best. <laughs>